0: Joining Hunkering Down with Peter Short is our good friend, James Moore. How are you, sir?
1: Can't complain, you know. I'm not stir-crazy yet, but uh, hunkering down, as they say, with everyone else.
0: Uh, you're in Tallahassee, correct? Is that right? Is that okay. And
1: as of tonight, we have, I think, a... Uh, I think we have a stay-at-home order, you know, essential business only starting at like 11 p.m. tonight.
0: It's like stay-at-home, please. It's not really an order. It's more – it seems We're to fast. have um, some hole uh, – and it seems to have more holes in it than other ones. But, yeah, um, I uh, I like that. Stay. It's a, I think there's like – but there's also a curfew too, if I remember, which is actually the more – kind of serious because then they can like I mean I guess they can put you in jail or whatever, but yeah, it's um which raises an interesting question. Former gubernatorial staffer James Blair, uh how would you rate um your former boss's uh performance so far in tackling the coronavirus epidemic? Uh
1: you know, I think he's doing a good job. I mean, anytime you have these situations there's Always going to be people, uh, you know, have a complaint or a, a bone to pick about one specific issue or another. Um, but you know, I've seen how these things work. Um, I was air back during the uh, almost hurricane, but I've been in a level three activation uh, with this governor and his staff, and they work incredibly hard. I mean, it's around the clock. Uh, he is constantly getting updates, making decisions. Uh, processing mass amounts of information um so it's not an easy job it's an easy thing to armchair quarterback but it's not an easy thing to do um and i think he's doing very well you know i, I don't ultimately i guess we'll see what happens after the fact but uh you know florida's one of those places which i think you and i have talked about that is uh we have a unique uh, uniquely toxic mix that can make this tough for us, um, everything from our demographic mix to heavy travel um, in and out of the state, you know, you name it. So I think we probably have one of the more difficult situations and I think they're doing well.
0: What is he like to work with? Um, I, I, I don't I think you had like you worked under one hurricane threat, but give us a sense of what you know, without you know, I don't want you to violate any privacy, but I don't think a lot of like Floridians know necessarily how he works um I really like I will say I like how conversational he is when he's like announcing a plan. he really does. He tells you what he has thought about, like if you, he's like, well, I looked at the plan in California and I don't agree with that. And you can see what they're doing in New York. Like he he does run through that checklist of what he's thought about. Doesn't even matter if you agree with him or not. And this is my overall point with Governor DeSantis. He is making decisions. You could I I think there's three places to be right now. There's, you know, lock it down. There's not lock it down. And then there's waffling. Um, and he is not in that third category. He has made a decision um, as governor, as the person who was elected, based on what he's being told, um, and he does not feel like locking down the entire state is worthwhile right now. Um, so, but I want to hear from you on this. What is he like to work with? What is, what's that like up close? Yeah.
1: Um. Well, it's funny you mentioned that he's conversational and he talks about what he looked at. Um, He really means that. And he doesn't mean, uh, you know, he looked at the newspaper article. I mean, he really looked at it. I guarantee you that staff is working uh, triple overtime, bringing him information um, about what other states are doing, what the feds are doing in real time, what's going on. I mean, the governor is... I'm not sure if I have ever been around somebody who can consume and process information uh, as rapidly as he can. Um, I mean, he just, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's a hurricane or not, you know, a a budget, a piece of legislation. Um, I've seen him have conversations with people. Uh, about litigation, you know, and he will recall the footnote uh, and quote it and what case it cites back to, um, you know, in some some debate about something. I mean, it's amazing the level of detail he is able to consume and recall at an incredible pace so um you know that that's kind of what working with the governor is i mean you put together all of the information for him from the mundane to the sublime you know the down to the technical details um he will really read through it he will ask questions uh he will want more information um and ultimately he'll come to his decision so you know he doesn't he doesn't take these things lightly Uh, and he puts a lot of energy and effort into making his decisions so uh, it's sort of impressive to watch up close but you know I think uh, a lot of elected officials you know staff are making decisions and of course in some cases that is true um, but he really wants to know what's going on he wants the details and he wants to be able to assess it for himself and you know with the help of um, his relevant teams and he does that so it's pretty impressive to watch up close and then when he's come to a decision that's his decision you know
0: i need to step back and kind of introduce you you're james blair yes i've revealed that you're a former governor staffer but just give the audience a 15 second thumbnail on who you are what you're doing what you've done and what you're doing now um
1: let's see i uh i came up doing political races particularly on the uh the uh, state house side. I worked for the Republican Party of Florida in the House campaign arm for a number of years, uh, worked with my dear friend and mentor Richard Corcoran for many years, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, um, you know, so I, right now, given that it's campaign cycle, probably about 70% of my time is being consumed with uh, working for Republican political campaigns. Um, but I also do some corporate public affairs work uh, and issue based work on the side as well.
0: Okay. Uh, Well, then that kind of raises an interesting question while we've got you again. And just, I mean, you're just all sorts of information. Um, What is it like now for candidates? Like, what are you going to do with them for the next, like, you just tell them to shut up? I mean, we had a story today about Margaret Good, the state house candidate over in, or this congressional candidate, state lawmaker in uh, House District 72. You know, she's, she wanted to raise money off of coronavirus she two weeks ago she put out like you know um a very direct appeal you know hey coronavirus is happening i need money and then last night she like she launched a a like informational website for that you know is because she's a state lawmaker is what her platform is but it's really about her running for congress she tried to pay for it with her state political committee which um, as you may know, she's not mm-hmm. allowed to do. She no, scrubbed no. that, and then now it's paid for by her camp, her congressional campaign. So it is just a political act, and it's just like I get that there's some useless or useful information there, but it's just like why does this person want so much to campaign right now during coronavirus? I mean, you kind of just have to like accept the fact that. There is a time and a place for everything and she is not in that place as a congressional candidate great as a state lawmaker just not as a, as a congressional candidate
1: yeah um so it's funny you know i i think all the campaigns are are probably going through uh the same thing i actually i listened to the hunkering down uh podcast with my dear friend uh anthony Petticini. Who's of course one of the um, top political consultants in Florida, and you know he mentioned shutting down of fundraisers and canvassing and all these things. And of course, you know that that's happening everywhere. I think that what what my advice to Ben has been, clients, particularly if you're an elected official, is it's okay to talk primarily about the coronavirus. Though you know you have to be sensitive. It's okay to be public, but I've encouraged them. Um, not to be, uh, speculators, um, and commentators at this time, but to just simply use their platforms, whether that's in a radio interview or their email distribution or their social media or whatever to push, um, relevant information and public information and public resources out to the general public, you know, so whether that's what the feds are doing and their websites and information, you know, coronavirus.gov or what the department of health is doing, what the governor's doing. Um, but generally just serve as, uh, you know, information source and sort of use their platforms to share the public information about the response, where to go for help, what people should be doing. And that I think is probably the best way, um, to sort of stay, Uh, above the surface right now, even if you don't have an actual role in response. But I do think that elected officials need to be a calming force, but also an information source. Um, but then you know, I think it's different for Democrats right now, from the federal level all the way down to the state level. Of course, their instinct is to want to challenge um, what the responses are being by Republicans that are in leadership, and they've got a tough line to walk uh, of trying to highlight how they would do it better without politicizing a crisis. You know, and um, tough luck for them. You know, obviously, for fortunately for me, I'm a Republican. Um, But then, you know, then there's the group of people that are not elected officials and, you know, what I would say there, uh, people that aren't incumbents or or don't already have a profile, um, the creative will survive, you know, in in certain cases, this might actually be good for certain campaigns, depending on where they are in the race, Um, gives them a chance to organize and and recalibrate and Don't reveal too much secret sauce, but I think we're thinking about creative ways to get back in front of the public um, in a test appropriate, of course, um, and also when the time is right. But I think that campaigns are going to evolve massively from this. I mean, even if we you know the goal of having the economy open by East or whatever the case may be um the general public may not immediately feel ready to go back to fundraisers and go back to uh, canvassers at their door and go to public events and speeches and debates and these sorts of things you know so this is an opportunity to rethink campaigns top to bottom and um the creative will survive you know
0: yes I, i do think i i i think that there is a i don't think that every challenger is locked out because uh they're facing an incumbent i think some incumbents will have some questions that they're going to have to answer about what they did have done on health care um and i think people are you know like uh, just looking at one issue and this isn't a I'm, i'm not arguing one side of it or not but you know we substantially cut uh unemployment uh compensation after the last great recession it was really rick scott pushing that um there are people who voted to do that along with him that are still serving or that are running Again now, and they're going to have, you know, they're they will probably have to answer for that vote, you know, that they made in 2011, 2012, um, both within GOP circles and at the general election, and that's going to be a Democrat and Republican thing. Um, So there will there will be a time and place for all of that. Um, When did coronavirus get serious for you? Like when did when did you know, hey, wait a second, this is going to be a little bit – this is not going to just be a uh, uh, a moment, that this is going to be a 9-11-like event? Um, I, I think – well,
1: I'll say this. I'm probably a little bit fatalistic, I think, um, because of a millennial generation as a table. You know, we've been we've done 911 and the Great Recession and uh, Ebola and Bird Flu and Mars and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I think like I really wasn't taking it as seriously as I should. I mean it's where the like matters to the world's thing anyway, you know. Um and then I I watch the markets fairly closely just because it's of interest, not because I have some gob because uh, you're loaded <laughs> maybe one day less so yep yeah. unfortunately i didn't have any securities uh to uh, sell on my inside information hey james anything. just real quick i uh-huh. just want
0: to i just want to insert i don't know if you're moving around or not and it's fine if you're choppy but you're breaking up a little bit like is are you at a desktop yeah. or are you on a phone i'm at a. okay at
1: a desktop i can phone how's this working any better still that seems,
0: yeah that seems better
1: okay um anyway i i started to watch the markets and you know when it when it fluctuating and started consistently going down um it was like wow i mean this is obviously getting really terrible and i think when we started to get the first news about how bad Italy was and how quickly things were because i think and maybe that was just my perception. or Otherwise, we all believed the news in Italy was real and accurate, you know what I mean? And whether it was Iran or China or whatever, we all, I think, are kind of like, you know, is it totally accurate? Um, but really, once Italy started to get really bad and simultaneously the U.S. market started tanking, I, you know, kind of woke up and was like, okay, we're in a whole new world. The most personal when I realized was really bad was I went to the grocery store just to shop um, and, <laughs> in Tallahassee. And everything was gone. I've never seen publics like that. Vegetables, frozen pizzas, pasta, bread, water, you name it. I've never seen anything like that. So I think that was the first time I realized how scared people were um, and how maybe I was behind the curve on how bad it really was or perceived, you know, bad it was.
0: Yeah, it's uh, – it. you know, somebody just brought up a good point. I was just talking with Anna Cruz and Todd Josko from Ballard Partners in the previous one, and there is a – uh, of course we know there's a digital divide but there's also and this isn't a fox news cnn kind of thing they're just some people just don't have access to they don't read the washington post they wouldn't even know to read the washington post and they're certainly not reading axios or you know newsletters about china or stuff like that and so yes there were mentions about it and things like that but um you know People just the 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 guys right now that I'm looking at hardworking. There's three guys building a house across the street. Those guys have been they. I mean they've been out here all morning. You know, forget about coronavirus. They got to get this house built. Um, you know, they're not on their app at lunch today reading Thomas Friedman's column in the New York Times. And so you know they'll maybe catch a couple of snippets on the you know drive in and out of work. And so. You know it's it's we're all there's a there's an elitism to our knowledge of when this stuff listen people don't even know like yes i've traveled to europe and i know what that means and but a lot of most people have not traveled to europe you know they don't know they don't know to look uh for certain things and so i feel like we need to do i wish we could do like a better step back and like hey we need to educate everybody on where this came from how this has moved um you know, and put aside the partisan bullshit about China virus and all that stuff. I get it. But like, we just need some basic explainers. We've ended up in this crisis and it's overtaken us. And no one's ever, no one has stopped and said, hey, let me just give you a five minute walkthrough on, you know, why do people need respirators? You know, what does this thing do? You know, why do we call it a uh, a coronavirus? Where did that, I mean, there just hasn't been any of that. And- I don't know. That's my rant on this podcast. Let's talk about something fun. You've got a documentary that you're watching that you love. I I am into episode... I, I've got through three episodes. It's insane. How good is Tiger King?
1: I don't say this it lightly. It's some of the best television that I can remember in recent years. It's unbelievable. And I can't even <laughs> spoil it with you. I mean, three episodes in... uh, It's crazy now. It really does only get crazier. Uh, I mean, uh, man, I don't want to spoil it, but gosh, you, you have every taboo topic, um, in that show that you can think of. It's really fascinating television drugs. They got it. Polygamy. They got it. Guns, exotic animals, uh, possible murders, missing persons. (laughs) I mean, to cram all of this into one story, uh, is truly unbelievable. Um, Some of the finest television ever. And, you know, I grew up in the area of Big Cat Rescue. That's like 10 minutes from where my parents live. Uh, It's in Citrus Park, Florida. Uh, I've known about that place my whole life. Um, And, again, without spoiling it, uh, it, I don't don't know about old Carol there. I am not a believer in Carol. All
0: right. So, number one, it's so funny because Michelle was going to take Ella's Girl Scout troop over to Big Cat Rescue. And, like, now I'm like, I'm glad you didn't do that. Number two – Yes, I've only through episode 3, but I will say like there's a term in journalism, you know, you bury the lead, you don't tell the your your real story in the first line. I feel it's this way with this pod or with this documentary because they had they introduce us to Joe Exotic in this crazy cast of characters and you're like, "All right, I can definitely watch four or five episodes about just this guy and his rivalry and everything like that." But then by episode 3, it switches into this murder mystery about this you know uh, let's be honest this prostitute Carol uh, who was walking Nebraska I'm Avenue glad
1: somebody said it I know Nebraska Avenue I thought the same thing but that's
0: hard she's do walking <laughs> Nebraska Avenue at 3 a.m in the morning I'm like and I, I just love that first date setup they're like you can hold a gun against me and like they make it romantic I decided to spend the night with them and I'm like yes because he gave you forty dollars that's how right. this works. Um, Mm -hmm. and so it just goes even like, it just, it does its own hold my beer (laughs) inside of its own documentary. So I can't wait to get to it. My third thought is number, and this is going to be like my rule of thumb going forward. I may switch the graphics, um, on my website. Anytime you introduce animal print, especially tiger print, you're just upping like, The intensity, 20 percent, you know, shit's going down if there's Mm -hmm. tiger stripes like imagine this. All right. You got like a van pulls up outside. It's the Amazon truck. All right. You're like, oh, great. Amazon's here. Imagine if it's an Amazon with the tiger stripes all over it. You're just like, holy shit, what am I getting from Amazon today? I mean, I just I I feel like we need more tiger stripes throughout all of society right now.
1: More animal print, no question. And, and I forgot, you know, one of the greatest, or one of the things that I think is the greatest thing here is, you know, that Joe Exotic's a country music star on the side. And yes. You, <laughs> oh my gosh! You gotta go listen to the music.
0: <laughs> how? How? Like he is. I, I don't like. I I'm thinking maybe like the Fire Festival docs were probably the best ones before this in terms of like jaw dropping. Mm-hmm where the guy literally said he was going to, you know, give somebody else a blowjob if it meant getting water to the people that were really thirsty. Mm-hmm. That kind of moment basically happens every 10 minutes in Joe Exotic. Like, I, and I, it's not spoiling, and I'm sorry, you know, you'll catch up with it uh, for those who haven't watched it. But when they arrive at the young woman whose arm was torn off by a tiger that's a great story. You're like, oh, OK, I'm going to hear a story about somebody losing their arm. This is going to be vicious. But then what you realize is she's still working for him. So, like, she she literally had her arm torn off by a tiger. And she's like, you know what? I don't know that I want another job. I want to go right back to where a 700-pound mammal tore off my limb. She only <laughs> has one more limb to give. And I'm just like... I, I just, and I'm amazed it, at her.
1: Absolutely. And what's most insane about it that I really, I'm like, are you kidding? You know, if you catch it, she's like, yeah, my finger still kind of worked. They said it would take two years of training or whatever to get most of my use back, or I could just get it cut <laughs> off. So I said, cut it off. And I'm like, what? Yes.
0: <laughs> what kind of choice is that? She, and from what I can tell, I'm told she's um, the like most sane of all the people In the documentary, which is I just Uh, it's no question. No question. And the guy with the
1: missing legs, he's he's pretty sane. I Actually, as it watches, you you know, as you go on, you're going to come back and think Carol, as weird as this is, might and her husband might even be the weirdest people on there. Um, The other guys, you kind of understand.
0: You bring up a good point here, like which is like usually with these documentaries, like you have like. Uh, and I guess you saw this in Fire Festival, and that's what made it really good on the one that played on Amazon Prom, Prime, not Netflix. Um, usually, like with a documentary, you'll have the one crazy person, you know, and then what you'll do is you'll have interviews with all the other people around them. But of course, the crazy person isn't going to like like be part of the documentary because you're basically making them look crazy in this documentary. Nobody has that hang up like. Carol is just right in there, just dishing. You know, nope. Joe Exotic, like, I guess they must have all thought, like, the documentary was about the other person because the access level and the honesty out of these people is breathtaking. It's
1: amazing. I, I've, I read, I've been reading post-ops on the show, <laughs> of course, and uh, I, I don't remember, I think it was Carol that said, you know, the producers, she would only agreed to do it because the producers painted it like it was going to be the next Blackfish. But for the big cat industry, you know, and these guys over here, um, you know, they said something else to or whatever. I mean, they definitely all thought it was going to be something more than it was. And an old Bhagavan Doc Antle, which I made my wife put Bhagavan on the potential baby name list as an aside. We haven't even think-
0: mentioned him and he is... <laughs> like how is there not a spin-off documentary on him like just there's got to be i can go second season just on like if they said tiger king colon bagov lives or whatever i'm all in <laughs> all in on that that like if it streams at three in the morning i'm getting up and i'm, I'm watching it
1: no question no question it's an amazing show. I got to tell you, I uh, there's not much black and white about it. This I don't think this spoils things, and this is this is actually something the producers said in one of the post ops. They said you know, because there's this underlying, you know, subtext, of course, is there anim- animal abuse? Is this right? Is this wrong? And they said, you know, nothing that's black and white uh, uh, about these people. You know, they get up, they work hard every day, they care for the animals, even if they're suffering. So the answer is it's complicated. Um, but because you've been through episode three, I'll at least say it to you. There's one thing that's black and white to me. Carol definitely did it. I mean, Carol totally did it. Oh, her- oh her son, absolutely. Like. That that is plain as day. And these excuses like, what? He couldn't even eat a pound, hundred pounds of flesh. I'm like, we've been watching these tigers eat a, a quarter of a cow this entire documentary with no bones or blood. Like, of course they could eat a human. No she's problem.
0: The, she's the worst <laughs> the worst liar I've ever seen. Like you're I her, know. she's just like, oh, it's crazy to think that a, a tiger could eat that much flesh. They can only eat ninety seven pounds of flesh, and that's over three days. How could they eat a hundred pounds of flesh? You're like, oh, so that's – I mean, it is It is literally O.J. Simpson level, like, I mean, lying. And when she – because I think she's, like, sitting in a golf cart and just, like, I don't even understand, like, why anybody would think that you killed him. And it's just, like, because he's worth $20 million and and 20 years ago you were a prostitute? Um, right. Is it, like <laughs> – <laughs> like, it's, it's that simple? Like, yeah, because you're batshit crazy nice. and he wouldn't let you have access to his money? Um, which he is hiding. I, there's so many, like, it's almost a Coen Brothers movie. Like, the casting, like, alright, so the minor casting is so amazing. Mm-hmm. Joe Williams' lawyer. Like, who is it? Where did that guy come from? Like, where where mm-hmm. is he now? I want, like, if you did a Breaking, or a Better Call Saul episode just about him, I would watch that. Number two, that, like, kinda retired detective, like, he like like he's another like if you just did crime stories with that guy. But honestly, the people that scared me the most in that documentary, the most bitter people of all, were Joe Williams's first wife. The the three ladies that are lined up and oh, like yeah. they're all like they're all old, old, and like, but they're a mother-daughter, so but you think that they're sisters and they're not, they're actually just that old looking. Mm-hmm. Um they have been hanging on to this for 30 years. I mean, they are it's amazing their level of bitterness um, for the whole situation.
1: I'd be pretty mad, too, I guess, if uh, – I mean, <laughs> they have to know what we do. Like, this was an obvious murder, and we lost all of our money, <laughs> and everyone's just like, oh, okay, and this lady's treated like a community hero. I mean, when they're interviewing the volunteers at her place, knowing what you know now about this right. woman – it's just like vomit inducing you know these people are like oh she's a hero you know we, we come here 20 hours a week for no pay and she's saving all the big cats and I'm like bs wrong you know uh,
0: you know um all right so I, I like I don't want to like and this is now officially the the longest somehow this is the longest podcast. Uh, wow. That I've done with Hunker, like it was supposed to be like 10 to 15 minutes, but I've needed somebody to talk with tight Ty- about Tiger King um, to really just break down my amazement, you know, just just at t- it's just so it's just so good. So uh, we're gonna have you back on, ha- but I want to I I, I want to land the plane and ask how's your wife doing? How's every how's the family doing? You know, this is hunkering down. I want to make sure everybody in your network uh is doing good uh
1: everyone's well no complaints uh as you know my my wife is uh with child so she's kind of just hanging out in the house um hasn't gone out much she's a little tired of that but that's okay she's staying at home staying healthy so no complaints there i um i read a op-ed in the tampa bay times yesterday from an older gentleman who moved to tampa not that long ago he's a writer i don't even know his name i saw Um, that Yeah, but I I send it to my dad, actually, because I know my dad feels that way, uh, because I I have four siblings, three older brothers and a younger sister, and our parents are in their early 70s. And we all did that to them kind of early on, actually, as soon as we knew it was really affecting older folks, we clamped down on them. You can't go to church. You can't go to the store. We'll help you, you know, stay contained. So. Um, that, that's what we've done to my parents. We have, we have locked them in their house. Uh, but you know, everyone seems to be fine. My, uh, my wife's mother is one of the heroes on this. She's a nurse and she is, uh, at the hospital every day and been sending us updates or actively treating patients. Um, And, uh, and, you know, have so many confirmed positive and so many that are presumptive positive and so on and so forth. So, um, but she's healthy, you know, everything's kind of okay. But, uh, you know, definitely no people that have been affected. We're lucky that. We still have our jobs, you know, and, and our immediate source of income and employment is is not really affected. But we do know people getting laid off and, um, you know, losing losing their income and those sorts of things. So, um, you know, that's tough. But you, you feel for people and try to help where you can. You know what I mean? But I do, I do. directly personally. We're OK.
0: Well, that is awesome to hear. Um, take care of everybody. Um, I'm going to go watch the next couple. Maybe you may be the first. Second time guest on Hunkering Down with Peter Shorts as I get uh, through the pod, and then we got to wrap. We'll do it, um, you know, a little roundup on that one one more time. I appreciate you coming on today, buddy.
1: Thank you. Enjoyed it very much.
0: Take care. Bye.